Texas, again, another marquee Senate race. Let's come over here. Texas is blue. Again, you don't see that on the map. It's been a long time. Better work just pulled ahead. Texas is looking like Florida tonight, isn't it? Back and forth, back and forth. In case you haven't heard, Beto O'Rourke is not the next junior senator from Texas. In this episode, though, we're not going to be spending a lot of time grousing about what he could have or should have done differently. We're going to be on the ground. And we start on election night at a bar full of El Paso politicos. They spent the day phone banking and block walking, trying to drum up every last vote for Beto. So we don't have any of Houston in, you don't have any San Antonio in, we don't have any of Austin in, and El Paso for sure is going to be huge Beto. Overall, I still feel good. I still feel good. We're going to win. It's a three-minute walk from that bar to Southwest University Park, the minor league baseball stadium where Beto's holding his rally. I go through the press entrance and hop onto an elevator. The doors open on the VIP floor. His family and staffers and closest friends, they're all here including at least one member of his old punk rock band, Foss. Beto is on the floor, but he's out of sight, inside one of the private luxury suites, watching the results with his family and his top staffers. So I don't know how he reacted when he saw this. And CNN projects that Republicans will maintain control of the United States Senate. This is an important win. Look at this. CNN projects Senator Ted Cruz, the incumbent Republican, will beat the Democrat. Beto O'Rourke. Everyone knew all along Beto's candidacy was a long shot. But a lot of the people here, they look shell-shocked. Many of them have been working for months, some of them years, to get Beto elected. A few start to cry. Slowly, Beto's private suite begins to empty. His campaign manager leaves, then his top strategist. Beto and his wife Amy emerge. About a hundred of their friends are waiting for him. Beto's face is flushed. He's grinning. Hugs, kisses, handshakes as he moves through the crowd. He does this for about 15 minutes, but he knows he can't keep going forever. It's time for his concession speech. The campaign is over. This is Underdog, a production of Texas Monthly and Pineapple Street Media. I'm Eric Benson. Beto lost by just over two and a half points, the closest margin for a Democratic statewide candidate in over two decades. The turnout and enthusiasm he generated helped Democrats upset two longtime Republican congressmen in Houston and Dallas. Democrats gained seats on the state legislature and took control of four major appeals courts. Down-ballot candidates for lieutenant governor, attorney general, and agriculture commissioner came shockingly close to winning. It was the best night the Democrats have had in this state since Ann Richards won her race for governor in 1990. And even though Beto lost the final, final stretch, it was fun and fascinating. This week, 36 hours in El Paso.
I arrive in El Paso on Monday, and it's madness. Every hotel room in the city is booked. No rental cars are available. There's media here from all over the world. You guys can just take a couple scooches back. So Beto has a chance to breathe and answer your questions at the same time. I met Beto in the summer of 2017. He was already five months into his campaign. But back then, he could walk into a crowded restaurant and go unrecognized. He used to have to introduce himself to people. As he arrives at the UTEP campus to speak to reporters before his final pre-election rally, it hits me. Right now, he's the biggest story in America. So thank you all for for being here. Um, Special thanks to all the reporters from El Paso who have been covering this race from the very beginning. It's great to be back here home with you. Amy and I live three blocks from here, um, so so we're literally back home. And, and to all of you who've traveled from other parts of the state... This pack of reporters, they're not going away. The next morning, Beto, Amy, and their three kids walk to their neighborhood polling place. It's 7 a.m. His campaign announced he would be there, but his staffers are expecting a kind of intimate event. It's not. First it's just guys. And the video guys go, eh. Beto and Amy cast their ballots and walk over to the cameras. The scrum crunches in. I get a position inside. Their daughter Molly is peering up from her dad's waist. She's wearing an I voted sticker. So hey, hey, okay, what are you going to be doing today and are there other races you're going to be watching? Uh, I'm going to be going to every polling location to talk to our volunteers, encourage them, bring them water, food that, that they need to, to be able to man, man the polls. You know, after the clock strikes 7.01 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, um, we'll get together as a, as a family and just um, look at some of the returns and then come down here to the Chihuahua's ballpark and, and be with our, uh, you know, our family, our friends, every, everyone who's been part of this campaign. Beto finishes up, then politely says he'll see us later that night. We're going we're gonna to walk back to our, our house right now, get these guys to school. He and his family start walking home. The herd follows. Beto's house is on a hill, and as he's walking up the steps to his front door, photographers perch above him on the cement retaining walls. He makes it to his porch, waves goodbye to them. A lot of those photographers, they don't budge. They're going to tail him all day. I have other plans. I'm going to meet up with Susie Bird and Veronica Escobar. They're lifelong El Pasoans, and they've been close with Beto for more than 15 years. Back in the mid-2000s, they all entered politics together. They were the young upstarts taking on an entrenched local government. They got a lot of pushback. They courted controversy. Susie and Beto actually wrote a book together making a case for legalizing marijuana. Now, though, Beto is, well, he's Beto Effin O'Rourke. Veronica is about to be elected to Congress to take the seat Beto is leaving. Susie is running Veronica's campaign. So they're all very much grown up, but Veronica and Susie, they still talk about Beto like he's their kid brother. I'm gonna sell the rights to it. So Beto, the untold story. (laughs) (laughs) And it'll be a bestseller, but I gotta do it now. I gotta write it quick. (laughs) I hop in the car with them. They're planning to visit polling places all day to talk to voters and do some last minute politicking. 5.38, the polling analysis website, gives Veronica a greater than 99% chance of winning her race. But she says she's only cautiously optimistic. 
I'm not sure I believe her. I'm, I'm still afraid I'm going to lose, and I'll be the first Democrat to lose it for El Paso. It's no, great. not really. I feel passionately optimistic. It's great to be her campaign manager because she's always surprised by uh, <laughs> good news. <laughs> the rest of us are. She's always sure she's losing. Like, <laughs> How are you feeling about Beto? I think he's going to win. Gonna win. <laughs> I think it'll be 50.8%. Oh, I thought it was And Ted Cruz is going to sue. They've spent most of their adult lives in politics. So they have their election day rituals. And I'm wearing, I have my lucky campaign teacher that's been with me since 2001. She's washed it. And so, yes. What, <laughs> what is smell. it? Is there a That something? smell. <laughs> Just wanted to warn you about that smell. A lot of holes. Until today, Susie, Veronica, and Beto have won every single race they've ever run. If Beto loses, what do you think he's going to do? I don't know. Well, we don't have to think about that because he's not going <laughs> to lose. Throughout the morning, Veronica tries to talk to every potential voter that she can. But later, she admits there's just not that much anyone can do on election day. That feeling a lot of us get while we're incessantly checking news websites and wondering where we can find info on turnout and exit polls? Politicians feel that too. At one point, Veronica and Susie meet up with Julian Castro, Barack Obama's Secretary of Housing and Urban Development a former mayor of San Antonio, and a widely rumored 2020 presidential candidate. He's in town for Beto's election night party. And what's he doing on election day? Honestly, he's killing time like everyone else, making small talk about what may or may not be going on. The Republicans have always been pretty clear that they're going to win. Yeah. <laughs> Except tonight. And it's also tonight, like you know? just that, like this intense sense of urgency, like yeah. we have to win. Yeah, that there's, there's real purpose that. behind it. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. true. Um, and how about election day? Have y'all gotten any reports yet on how about, things are doing? Uh, uh, 37,000. Six hours later, Veronica, Susie, and Julian Castro, they don't have to speculate anymore. They're on the VIP floor at the ballpark when Beto greets his friends and family after the results have been announced. Beto beams when he sees Castro, gives him a big handshake. With Veronica, it's more personal. He hugs her close, congratulates her for winning her election. Before that night, no Hispanic woman had ever been elected to Congress from Texas. You'd think Veronica would be elated. She's distraught. On the elevator downstairs to hear Beto's concession speech, she's in tears. El Paso has produced some really great teams over the years. And I am very lucky that I got to be part of one that came out of this community. And for the last 22 months... Veronica and Susie, one of the things they love most about Beto's candidacy is the way he's made El Paso a big part of it. And Beto's speech, it's basically a valentine to his hometown. I don't know any way to say this other than, El Paso, I love you so much. Then he hints at more to come. I am honored to have been able to do this with you. I am grateful forever, and we will see you out there down the road. As I'm watching Beto speak, two guys standing next to me keep chanting. What they're saying, it's what a lot of people are thinking. Party, 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 party. 
A political campaign, especially in Texas, it's a huge organization. For a Senate race, you gotta staff up real quick. Field directors, web designers, volunteer coordinators. But here's the problem. There are job sites that send you tons of bad resumes to sort through, or make you wait for the right candidates to apply for the job. That's not smart. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com underdog to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites with over a thousand reviews on Trustpilot. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash underdog. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash underdog. Say it with me one more time. ZipRecruiter.com slash underdog. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So what, what happened last night? I think that we saw the beginning of the end, very possibly, of one-party rule in Texas. Remember Jim Henson and Josh Blank, the UT political scientists and pollsters? We asked them to come back into the studio one last time. They think what happened on Election Day was pretty significant. Here's Jim. The, the most pregnant question today, then, is given what we know happened below him on the ballot, which was... Democratic gains in both houses of the legislature, Democratic gains in the congressional delegation, and increased Democratic gains in places that have been traditionally Republican in the state. You know, is that the beginning of something that Democrats as an organization can take advantage of? Josh agrees with him. The simple social science thing is to say, you know, two is not a trend, but three, you can draw a line, right? And you say, so Democrats lost by, you know, 20 plus points in 2014. They lose by nine points in 2016. They're going to end up losing at the top of the ticket by two to three points in 2018. It's hard not to walk away from that and say that something's going on. I think Democrats have done a lot of talking, usually before the election, about how, you know, this election is going to be different and this is going to be when Texas, you know, starts to turn blue. And I mean, that's a lot of bluster and hot air, honestly. But, you know, is Texas look a lot purpler than it did two days ago? Yeah, that's for sure. It's not just that Beto's campaign made Texas more purple. Josh thinks it also changed what it means to run as a Texas Democrat. I think the fundamental insight that Beto brought to the campaign from go If the electorate that shows up looks like a Texas electorate, Democrats lose. And there are a lot of people outside of Texas and inside Texas who always talked about, well, how do you peel off moderate white voters or center-right white voters to the Democratic coalition? And the answer is either you don't or you do and nobody else cares and nobody else shows up on the left. I mean, just it's it's a recipe for a losing strategy. And I don't see how a Democrat runs statewide in Texas without a, a complete and total focus on mobilizing young people, mobilizing people of color, focusing on women's issues, and just basically saying, yeah, I'm a progressive, and this is what we're, this is what we're running as, and it's a clear contrast, and it's a clear choice. None of this, I'm for open carry and, you know, and common sense restrictions on abortion. Those days are gone. And where does that leave Beto himself? 
Jim and Josh think those guys standing next to me on election night chanting 2020 are nuts. They don't think Beto should run for president. They think he has an obvious prize in front of him, and it's far more attainable and maybe even more important for the Democratic Party. I tend to think that what's next is he goes home and does what he has to do to convince his family that he's going to spend some really quality time for them through the holidays, and then he makes it very clear that he's coming back to run for the Senate seat in 2020. He's fresh in people's minds. The lessons he's learned from running statewide are fresh. The enthusiasm is there. And this is the time to do it. And the structural conditions are only better in 2020. Who knows what the turnout limit is in 2020 with Trump on the ballot. Whether O'Rourke runs against John Cornyn or somebody else in 2020, he already has better name ID. I mean, certainly for somebody else, but even even against John Cornyn in Texas. I also think that if O'Rourke were to run in Texas in 2020, it would be a, a boon to whoever the Democratic presidential candidate is, because it automatically puts Texas in play, and it puts Texas in play in a way that that Democratic candidate doesn't actually need to focus their resources themselves on Texas for it to be in play. I don't know about his relationship with his family like you do, because you're like, I think you have dinner with them or something. But well, like, you've been to his house. We've you've heard. been to his house. At least I've outside. never been inside. <laughs> I've never been inside. <laughs> Just to clarify. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I mean, I understand what it, what it, what a slog this has been. But the truth is, you know, if, if he wanted to be a senator and, and be in the Senate starting in 2019, and I understand the campaign is a different thing, is it really as big of an ask to go for, say, can I be a senator in 2021? I mean, I think there's something to that as opposed to, you know, a lot of people think he should run for president or he should be on the presidential ticket. But the truth is, if I'm National Democrats right now, I mean, the value of O'Rourke running again in 2020 is, I mean, it's, it's almost priceless. I mean, if you can have O'Rourke on the run and make and put Texas in play, Republican, you know, Donald Trump's going to have to spend resources here. The National Republican Party's going to have to spend resources here. And what everybody says and knows is true. The Electoral College math becomes prohibitive for Republicans if Texas were to go Democrat. You know, I just, I, you know, I mean, I think everybody should give him some time. But if I'm, you know, the National Democratic Party, I am like... Not too much. Not too much. I'm begging him to consider running again in 2020 here. Life insurance is really important, but one third of people don't have it. That's because it's really hard to buy. You have to work out what you need, then do the research to find the best quote and hope you don't get swindled along the way. It's not a good way to shop. So Policy Genius made the whole process a lot simpler. Policy Genius compares quotes from the top life insurance companies to find the best policy for you. All it takes is two minutes to get a quote. And even if you don't know the first thing about insurance, they've got all the tools to get you up to speed. I've looked over the Policy Genius site, and it's easy to read, it's intuitive, and it gives you all the information you need in one place. So whether you know a lot about life insurance or nothing at all, Start your search at policygenius.com. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes and make an informed decision for you and your loved ones. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. On the first night I met Beto back in August of last year, we talked about how he decided to run for Congress. It was his friend Steve Ortega, another member of his group of young El Paso politicos who suggested he run. I wasn't making a podcast then. I was recording on my iPhone for a print piece. Pardon the audio. 
I remember I was in Steve's office and I was real angry about all this stuff going on in Juarez and how the congressman was treating it. Steve said, you should run. I think anytime you're in politics, you, some part of you consciously or unconsciously thinks about other offices. I had never consciously thought that. And it just hit me. And I remember Amy was picking me up from work that day and I went down from Steve's office and I said, hey, uh, I was talking to Steve about the stuff we've been talking about. Steve says I should run for Congress or I should think about running for Congress. And she just like immediately just started crying. And like, it was just so hurtful or painful to her. Beto didn't run then. He waited another two years. Amy got more on board. But this life, the travel, the scrutiny, the sheer audacity of waging an underdog campaign. When I talked to Susie on election day, she says she's a little surprised Beto ended up here in the first place. He's sort of like a no drama person. Like he kind of, he likes things to be kind of calm. And when you argue, it's to be this really rational debate about the ideas and issues where, you know, I like to call people out and say what's what, and you know, Veronica the same. So, although he, he does this funny thing, I think I touch you, I think I touch you about it when we, when we talked, when you were first writing that piece, he does this funny, a kind of interesting thing where he just plunges into a moment in a way that's purely irrational and purely instinctual and kind of the way he got into this race like it wasn't really well thought out it was just sort of like build it as you go that it's it's sort of like he and it's it's almost like he's being guided by just sort of a moral focus on like what's right and needing to stand up against what's wrong and he did that a lot on city council where he would just sort of take these moments and do things that seem very unbethel-like. I mean, honestly, this the running for Senate seemed a little bit unbethel-like to me. Like he, you know, and I could have seen him, he did his four terms on Congress and he went and did something else fun. And, you know, I, I could have totally seen it. But I think that this moment meant, required more of him. And I think Amy very much felt like that, which is why I think he ultimately decided to do it. Will Beto do another very un-Beto-like thing and say, F the odds, I'm running for president? Who knows? Maybe the no-drama family man side of him will win out and he'll never run for office again. But whatever happens next, it's worth pausing to point out again how unlikely this election night in Texas would have seemed when Beto began his campaign. In the last midterm election in 2014, John Cornyn won his Senate race by 25 points. Republican Congressman Pete Sessions and John Culberson, they each got over 60%. On Tuesday, they both lost. The Republican candidates for Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General, and Agriculture Commissioner? In 2014, they won their races by around a million votes. Earlier this week, the same men got reelected by less than half that margin. It's hard not to look at Texas today and see a state that looks different. Beto was a big part of that. The day after the election, I call Mary Duty, the chairperson of the McLennan County Democratic Party. You remember Mary. Hey, how's it going, Eric? Tell me how you're doing. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing fine. 
I was going to roll over and play dead this morning, and then I started thinking about uh, character and all that. And Kim Olsen said September 11th didn't define her, but September 12th did as far as how you respond to adversity. And uh, I'm here at the office. I came in at 10, and I've been answering the phone and talking to voters and going over data, actually. McLennan County moved 3.8% further to the left than we did in the presidential year. Mary's Beto-curious Republican husband, Roland, was he part of the blue wave? <laughs> At this time, uh, he he's only told me that he voted a split ticket. I mean, I haven't really talked to him much because we were afraid to talk to each other this morning because when, when Hillary lost, I was in like the depths of depression for months. I mean, it was like we were getting real close to having to go to therapy. And uh, I promised him this time I wouldn't be, I wouldn't cry. And uh, and I didn't cry until my daughter, my granddaughter, looked me in the eye this morning and said, did Beto win? And she knew already he didn't. She just had that look on her face. And I had to explain to her about winning and losing and long games. And it was sad. <laughs> but as usual, what I get from Mary is this. Nothing's easy. Sure, take a second to rest. Y'all worked hard. But if you want to change things, you got to get back to work. Everybody's got to take a few days off because it's when well, we're tired physically, you know. But uh, tomorrow, 2020 starts. Underdog is a co-production of Texas Monthly and Pineapple Street Media. Our executive producers are Max Linsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Brian Standifer, who also scored and mixed the show. Underdog is produced by Chris Berube and edited by Joel Lovell, with a big assist from Jonathan Menhevar. Our theme is Bloodhounds on My Trail, written, produced, and performed by the Black Angels, courtesy of Light in the Attic Records. Jorge Castillo, the legend, played guitar for the score. A special thanks to our interns, Kaylee Hanna, Julia Jones, Kent Shearer, and Jack Keyes. A very special thanks to my wife, Ella Benson, for putting up with my late nights, absent weekends, and trips around Texas. My name is Eric Benson. I wrote, reported, and hosted this thing. It's been a pleasure being with you these last five weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.